Chef David Chang and the members of the Recipe Club sift through millions of search results to find the very best way to make the food you want to eat. Each week, they cook three recipes for the same dish, debate them, and ultimately declare the winning recipe. Check out Recipe Club on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I have no official title at TheRinger.com, sadly. As you can tell, I am not joined, as I usually am, by my buddy Chris Ryan. This is a special bonus episode of The Watch, uh, celebrating one of the best shows of the year, HBO Max's comedy series Hacks, which completed its brilliant first season last week. You may have heard uh, the two of us talking about how great this show was on Monday's episode. And so I was so thrilled to welcome the show's co-creators and the co-showrunners, Lucia Yellow, Paul Downs, and Jen Statsky onto the show for a fun conversation about how this thing got made and how they're going to keep making it in the future. It was a pleasure to talk to those three. I've been a fan of all their work for a long time, whether it was Lucia and Paul on Broad City or uh, Jen on The Good Place. So this was a great talk and this is a very special episode. So celebrate, feel good about it, and know that The Watch will be back with me and Chris Thursday night for our usual second show of the week, which this week will most likely be talking about the second episode of Loki on Disney Plus and the latest episode of Top Chef. So let's get into it. This is my conversation with the creative team behind Hacks, Lucia, Paul, and Jen. I am so very pleased to welcome onto The Watch podcast the... Uh, co-creators and showrunners of one of the best shows of the year, Hacks on HBO Max. Please welcome uh, Lucia Yellow, Paul Downs, and Jen Statsky. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having us. Also thrilled because this appears to be in celebration of June 15th, California's Everything Open Day, the first COVID unfriendly podcast we've ever done because you guys are on three Zoom boxes on my screen, but you are all in the same room, which I applaud. Yes. That's right. Although, yeah. truth be told, we have been a bubble for about a year and a half. Yes. <laughs> We've been together for a long time. Because we basically wrote the show and shot it and edited it all during the pandemic. So we have been together and yeah, the whole thing was made during this really fun time. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's an even more impressive achievement because of that. And I do want to ask specifically, I also want to say, uh, extend my apologies, Chris, my co-host is not here for this podcast partly because he thinks uh, five people is too many, but also because I think he cor assumed correctly that I was going to hijack this and turn it into a Babysitter's Club podcast. Um, oh, let's which do I that. Which I still might do, depending how much time we have, because big fan, big hit in my household. I um, love that. Thank you. It's my Star Wars. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we're on the graphic novels currently yes, uh, with my children, which are outstanding. So, but anyway, I digress. Let's talk about hacks. Um, so the three of you, I believe, first worked together on Broad City, a show that I also love very much. Is that maybe accurate? Uh, is this is this the right place to begin the origin story of this show or or reset me completely if I'm wrong? Well, Jen and I actually met when we were both in a sketch group in New York uh, many moons ago. We were the only two girls in the group, women, I suppose. <laughs> and the girls at the time. Yeah, we were young. Like 22, yeah. yeah. And they stopped emailing us. So we were just slowly kicked out of the group. Um, but we were sketch, sketch comedians, we always the best. We liked each other. We, yes. we found that we worked well together. So yeah, that was, that was kind of our first. And then obviously she and Paul had already been working together and we're together and we all met and, and yeah, just kind of immediately started working together and working on stuff. Yeah. And then, and then broad city, we did work on together. Um, but you know, we've worked on a lot since we, uh, on our movie rough night, Jen was on set as like a punch up writer and we've written a movie on spec together and we have done what else? Oh, well, the reason that we even came up with the show is because we were all on a road trip to work on Paul's Netflix, the character special. And that is kind of actually when we first had the idea for hacks, what a great segue into the HBO max show. Hacks. <laughs> Which by the way, great show. We should probably get to it at some point. Um, <laughs> so, so the idea sort of was generated naturally between the two. It wasn't one person's dream show that you then brought to the other two. It kind of formed organically through discussions and road trips and yeah, we were driving to a Monster Jam monster truck rally, yes, in Obviously. Portland, Maine. And uh, we were driving from Boston area. Uh, and so, yeah, on the road trip to the most macho event you could possibly imagine, possibly the most macho event I've ever experienced um, as the man in the group, um, was when we first started talking about, you know, a lot of the our favorite comedians who happen to be women, um, who didn't feel ever got the same due that a lot of their male counterparts had. So it was really on that road trip that we were talking about that concept and these women who had been cast aside. And the idea was born in your father's car. Jack. Yeah, my dad's <laughs> Honda Pilot that we had brought to take Paul to his character special. Yeah. God and bless. I do think people should seek out this character special too. After they've watched Hacks, Jasper Cooch is the character's name. It's it's worth a watch. I appreciate that. Truck rally. And it was filmed at the Monster Truck Rally. That wasn't just the place you were driving on an off day. No, oh, yeah. No, I was going to um, hijack it and uh, <laughs> allow my character to exist amongst uh, the rally itself. It was incredible. They basically just let Paul take the mic at this monster truck rally, and he could have said anything. He could have like screamed, "There's a bomb!" In the <laughs> but like, it was insane to me. But the main bit of it was that that his catchphrase is "Big trucks, big trucks." So that's, that's pretty much the gist. They gave him the microphone. He does a little introduction to. It. On Jasper Cooch, I love whatever, whatever. And then he does a call and response of when I say big, you say trucks, big <laughs> trucks, big trucks. And then he proceeds to say big trucks for four to five minutes <laughs> to the point where it's absurd that it's still going on. And that's literally the entire bit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> do, do, do monster truck rallies generally run with more precision? Like, like you, when you, you acted like, should I be surprised that you were able to grab the mic? I feel like they're generally loose events. No. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently not. I, I am surprised still that it happened. <laughs> I just assume any large event, they're not just like, even though it was for a Netflix show, that they're not just right. handy because they didn't know what you were going to say. No. 
So it's like they just gave him free reign. It doesn't. It yeah. doesn't sound like you're doing a Borat. Like they, it was for big trucks, and you were celebrating big trucks. I don't see the problem. Right. There was no entrapment. Yes, there was no. Yeah. I didn't do anything to make people embarrass <laughs> themselves, other than potentially scream at the top of their lungs trucks over and over and over again. But I tell you what, the enthusiasm of those fans, that, that those the monster truck fans may be unmatched in their enthusiasm and their passion for the art. <laughs> it's bigger of light. It's such a simple and primal thing that the truck is bigger than other trucks. I'm sorry, I'm getting, <laughs> we're, we're digressing here. Um, so you have this conception for the show, obviously built around a comedian character who has to be quote unquote legendary, and yet it's a fictional character. I'd love to talk about how Gene Smart came to the role, owned the role, dazzled America in this role. But also, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, in thinking about how this came together, I feel like when you got Gene Smart in this part, you you have a show, like this is going to work for an episode, but the casting of Ava feels so tricky to me because depending on how you cast that part, that's going to deter- determine whether you have a series or not. And so I, I wonder if you could talk me through a little bit the I mean, I, again, I could be wrong. I assume Jean was attached first and then how you paired someone with her, because that's really going to determine what this is going to look like and be and feel like. Yeah. Jean was attached first. We, um, we, you know, talked a lot about when we were writing the show, a lot of these showbiz veterans that the character is based on, but we didn't have anyone in mind. But when it finally came time to cast the show, because we wanted to make something really grounded and really real, that had emotional moments and more poignant moments, but also was hard funny mm-hmm. and had to have an actor who could believably be a stand-up comedian, which means mm-hmm. you have to be really funny and know how to land a joke. The list of people that could do comedy and drama in equal measure was actually quite small, especially them being over 65. And, you know, there, there were a lot of parameters. And for us, Gene was always at the top of that list. And yeah, we met with her and she, Turns out, always wanted to be a stand-up comedian, had dressed as Phyllis Diller uh, as a child for a Halloween party. Yeah. So it was really weirdly kismet. But you're right, the the Ava part was much more difficult. And we saw probably 400 women or so for that role. And I think that the thing that obviously requires chemistry with Gene, and we did do a chemistry read, but also the character is built to have a place to go. We want it to be very grounded again and realistic and someone who had growing to do. And that's a hard part to play. And when Hannah came in and read for it, she just had a different cadence and vibe and she did the part differently than anyone else we had seen. So it was really pretty remarkable. We'd never seen her before. Weren't aware of her in any way. Never gonna see her again. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, But yeah, she just really, was just really it's about a unique it. dynamic for sure. Yeah. How, how would you characterize that dynamic? Because I think that, and you, you may have heard us say this on the podcast, I think one of the, the things that she does at times appears effortless, although I, I imagine this is, to me, it takes it would take an enormous amount of effort. She, you know, she's not, she's prickly. She's tough. She does things yeah. that are, you know, unli- I hate that word, but unlikable for an audience. And, and yet always is true to the core of, I think, Paul, you re- I really like what you said, of someone who has somewhere still to go. So how would you characterize the dynamic from day one um, that you saw in her? Well, like you said, she has somewhere to go and somewhere to grow. And so the farther we could take her in that direction, 
you know, the more character development mm-hmm. we get to, to have. And I think if you know Hannah as a person, she is really so sweet and nice and like kind. And so even if we're writing dialogue and action and things for her to do that maybe would be traditionally unlikable, I think there's something that you can tell under the surface that Hannah has that she lends to Ava that makes you know that like in her core, she's a good person, even if she's misbehaving. And there's something a little intangible about that, but I think the mixture of the real person behind the character helps make it like you're rooting for her to do the right thing, even when she doesn't. And she's proven to, she won't always, but that then when she does, you're like, yes, that is the person I want you to be. And I feel like you are deep down inside. And so in that way, we co-opt a bit of, I think, Hannah's likability, in my opinion. And that helps make Ava feel a little bit more lived in, a little bit more real and empathetic and sympathetic. I think it's also interesting to note that Hannah herself is a stand-up and has done stand-up, um, where Jean clearly, I didn't know this, wanted to, but but hasn't done it. You know, I remember when um, the last season of The Wire dropped and it was set partly at the newspaper and, and my friends and I, who were all at least journalism adjacent, were like, oh God, everything about this is wrong. And then I suddenly realized what all doctors must have thought watching ER or what anyone in any field <laughs> thinks. I can only imagine what it's like for people who do stand-up to see people pretend to do stand-up or act at doing stand-up. Um, how did you approach that with the show? Having one stand-up who's not doing it, you know, on set constantly, teaching someone who has to be a legend and pulling it off plausibly, at least in terms of my journalism adjacent eyes. Yeah, I think I think that was a huge challenge in, in the writing of the show was writing the jokes to feel for Deborah to feel authentic and real and that like they are both jokes that would attract a wide audience and she would still be, you know, filling a crowd at a Vegas theater, but also that they're not so good that she doesn't again have somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a very like difficult challenge in part of the show that I think was like one of the parts that we kind of labored over the most, but I think it is just, we also benefited, I think, from even though, you know, we've all done stand up, Paul still does stand up, but we're not really stand ups, but we have been around a lot of like, Paul is really a stand up. No, no, I was, I was laughing because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> not because but I was like, like excuse moi, but we've been, we've been around comedians. Those are the people that we've spent the last 10, 15 years of our lives like with and working with. Mm-hmm. So I think hopefully if it feels real and I, I, that it, it, just that kind of seeped into the writing, just being around comedians, being in comedy, understanding this sort of language that we all speak and kind of trying to translate that as authentically as possible to the page and then to the screen. And But in the end, it is just a buy. You just need to buy that that's who she is because in the end, I mean, it's not something, we're not really trying to make a show about material or about stand-up. It's about the people who are doing comedy or performing stand-up. So for us, it's still about the backstage, why she's telling these jokes more so than the jokes themselves. So, I mean, who knows where, where, how much we'll actually see of season two, but to me, it's like the less important part once you buy into it. It's everything up to the stage. Yeah. And so, and and even as we continue to develop Deborah's material, it's, it's to me, at least like I'm, I'm more interested in, and what she's choosing to say more so than what she, I, I don't personally need to see it as much on stage. So you guys may have heard us harp on this repeatedly because we can't get over it. And so I'll bring it to you directly. Um, 
it's quoting one of the executive producers of Hacks and, and someone Jen's worked with for a bunch of years, Mike Schur, who in an interview years ago told me that he truly wishes that people could make, you could make your first five to 10 episodes of a comedy in a bubble, throw them away. And the first one everyone sees is like the 11th, because in his mind, that's how long it takes for all the pieces to gel and for the writers to understand who they're writing for and the actors to understand their characters, et cetera, et cetera. That may or may not be true. Regardless, we liked Hacks so much in the first two episodes. And then suddenly by episode four, we're like noticing background players we hadn't noticed before and like willing to take a bullet for them. It, it felt to <laughs> us that your show took this evolutionary leap so quickly and it was so thrilling to watch. And it was a, an ascent that didn't stop. It just ran through the, the rest of the season. I guess the question somewhere in there is about your thoughts on that idea and whether you felt it coming together more quickly than you imagined or if there was a moment or moments when you suddenly realize that, oh, this is clicking the way we imagined it clicking? Well, you know, I think one of the advantages we had was uh, on that road trip, uh, coming up with the idea, that was six years ago. So we've been talking about the series for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, developing the characters for a long time. And some of the characters like Deborah Vance are based again on iconic figures. And luckily we have someone as talented as Gene Smart who becomes the part. You know, there was no like, how do we write for Jean? Jean doesn't need, she, Jean is a classically trained theatrical actress and she reads the, every line of dialogue and every line of action and she does it. And the other thing for us was because we had that time to ruminate on the show, when we pitched the show, not only did we pitch the first season, we, although we didn't do it in HBO, at HBO, at HBO and HBO Max, we didn't do what we did in a lot of the other pitches, which is pitch the series finale. We've mm. thought about the show long enough now that we, know where we'd like it to go. And of course that when you have a writer's room and you have different points of view and you get the actors there, those things will change. And I'm sure season two will end up being much different maybe than we initially thought. But in terms of season one, a lot of it was kind of in place. Um, Although it did feel good, yeah, you know, when it was all coming <laughs> but, together, but, yeah. you know. I, I've certainly, you know, as someone who's worked with Mike on shows where mm -hmm. maybe like, this show in a really wonderful, lucky, but also purposeful because we got to plan it so intently way felt so instantly like Hannah was Ava and Jean was Jean was mm -hmm. Deborah and every cast member who like the supporting players like you're talking about just sort of instantly locked in. I never felt the way maybe even we felt on other shows where it was like, oh, okay, this isn't working. We need to adjust and right. we need to make and I and I hope that is because like Paul said, we had it was planned enough that like a lot of groundwork that is laid in the pilot or laid in episode two pays off in episode four, five, six, ten in a way that I think hopes makes it feel very holistic. And so uh, yeah, it's it's. I, I've heard Mike talk about that too, but like I think we we just you know it, it kind of felt that we were able to look at it more holistically, mm -hmm. and we didn't have to scramble on our feet as much, which certainly sometimes does happen when you're making a TV show. And also, this is for streaming, right? And and I mean, I haven't worked as in, on as many like traditional you know network shows. I haven't worked on any network shows, but something that we tend to do is block shoot, right? So in any given day, you might be shooting a scene from episode one, two, or three, but because of COVID, because of a lot of different reasons, we essentially block shot the entire season. So wow. it's interesting kind of to, I mean, you know, not completely, but 
a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So it's so kind of interesting to me and people are like, wow, Hannah really found her footing by the episode seven. I'm like, we shot that first. We shot this scene from episode <laughs> yeah, one last. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand that like things kind of get, there's like a sense of that, but I think if people actually saw the yeah. order of so many things, they'd actually be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. But what I hope that is, sorry, last thing, is that it's that it's purposeful that she was written to maybe feel more floundering yes. in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, she's finding herself. She's right. realizing things about herself. And then Hannah just elevated that so much because mm-hmm. what was on the page was that was always the intention for it to feel that way. And then Hannah matches it. And hopefully it feels like it comes together in a successful way. It's so good that we we talked about this because I think that it's kind of a vestige of the old way of doing TV, the idea that especially with comedies, you can adjust on the fly, which is a great thing for some shows that can do that. But this narrative that people are finding themselves and it's clicking is pretty outdated, especially COVID or no, as you know, as, as block shooting becomes more the norm. And we we spoke to Kate Winslet, which this is a that's a humble brag. And she, <laughs> but, she, but, but she was basically like, it's a total fiction when people are like, your your Delco accent got better by episode five because we mm-hmm. shot the finale scenes on my first day of shooting. Um, exactly. but, exactly. but if that's how they want to understand the show, okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, as long yeah. As it's, yeah totally. it's everybody likes the most improved. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I, I, I do want to talk about specifically episode uh, 105, Falling. But before we do that, because I, I think a lot of people have pointed to that one as kind of a turning point, both in the season and in their understanding of what the project for you guys may have been, you know, how, how wide this can go, how deep it can go emotionally. But I have to say the moment when I was like, oh, this show has made the leap, even though you probably shot this first or whatever, was the end of episode of 104, which is after everything that's gone on when Deborah and Ava are on the phone watching TV together. And there's such a easy intimacy to the way that they talk and to the way that the show feels. And I'm just like, oh, I want to live in this. I want to live in this moment, which is such a primal TV reaction, you know, for shows that are about, and, you know, I think this is a hallmark of Mike's shows as well, about community. Like you want to be there regardless of how prickly they are or how long you could actually live in a Vegas uh, (laughs) hotel room. You know, there was something that was just felt so assured and confident in that. And um, I guess that was ended up just being a compliment and not a question, but I wondered if you could speak on that idea. Yeah. I mean, I think, thank you. We, um, we really felt it watching that scene not only get shot, but also come together in the edit and putting them literally together you know, right. in a split screen, making them essentially at a slumber party together. These two hardened women who don't have anyone else finally letting someone sleep over was really gratifying even to us. But this also, because I don't want it to seem like we as the architects of the series mm. really had it all, uh, you know, under lock and key and made it work because it does speak to the talent and the chemistry of Gene and Hannah. And I will say that their chemistry was apparent from the day that they chemistry read because it was also during COVID. So they were in a huge, and poor Hannah, who has never acted before, has done stand up but has never been on screen for a minute in her life, came to a huge empty soundstage with huge air filters and then sat like 20 feet apart. But at one point, Gene said, after their first scene, said, I um, I want to tell something. I want to tell Hannah something, but I don't want you guys to listen. So we talked amongst ourselves and she went over and whispered something to Hannah. Their chemistry and their relationship almost came fully formed. They just took to each other. It was really kind of magical. So a lot of that, I think, is also getting to see them enjoy each other and getting to watch that chemistry, which I think is that's kind of the very first time you're really feeling them. Mm-hmm 
gel is such a good feeling. And it, it, it's a big turning point for us in terms of the character mm -hmm. development. Right, because you do see chemistry in the pilot, but you see an antagonistic chemistry. Yes. What you see at the end of four is a casual chemistry, right. which I think is actually what you're saying, like the more comfortable, it's like the warm sweater. And I think the warm sweater thing with TV shows, I mean, it's overlooked and, and people think of it as easy, but it's kind of the meat and potatoes of why people watch TV. And you guys just did it and you didn't overlook the importance of it. And I think you, you can feel your consideration of that in all of the casting, you know, when like now I want to see the great Lauren Weedman as your mayor. And I'm like, I bet we can use her again. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it's just like every the consideration is up and down the board. And I guess the, the question I have about that, and particularly in the model of what television is now for people and what is expected of it, is I kind of want to coin a phrase, I'm going to try it out on you, um, the Dayenu problem, which is if you just had a show where these people were wonderful and we spent time with them, like, that's better than 90% of TV pilots, and you're good, like, that would be enough. But the contemporary model of TV is, you know, keep pushing, keep changing, throw friction, throw uh, drama into your comedy. You guys pull it off brilliantly in this season. I guess I wonder where you guys fall on that divide because you have this base now. Like, I, I feel like I want to watch 10 years of your show. Sorry, that's a lot of work for you guys, but I do. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not going to happen. <laughs> and yet, I'll, I'll take half that. Um, but, but, you know, you also are, as we saw in the finale, throwing in, not stopping with curveballs, not stopping with wrenches, you know, not, not stopping with the speed bumps on the way to their second slumber party, in Paul's words. You know, I think we really wanted it to feel like real life. And you know how it is when you are dealing with something painful and you make a joke to release that tension. And it is sometimes the hardest you laugh. I think for us, we, we just wanted to do something that felt like real life. And so I absolutely love watching a sugary sweet show that's very comfortable to live in. And I think that's great. But I also really like watching an anxious, I love watching succession and being anxious and feeling the drama and feeling like the family play off of each other. I like both of those things, but the thing I wanted to watch the most was honestly a show kind of like this that had the really hard laughs and also had moments that are more poignant yeah. because I do think that feels true to life. Yeah, I think comfort TV can be a lot of things and, and maybe this is just our personal feeling, which is why we made the show we did. But like to me, comfort TV is when life is reflected the way it really is. And that is the duality of both really sweet moments, really happy moments, friendship and love and all that, but also pain and suffering and figuring that out and, and using the, uh, you know, each other to figure to, to get through that. And so I think, I, I think that's why our show has both of those elements that you were just discussing is because we are comforted and we love watching things that just feel real and feel like the life as, as we know it. I, I also just felt, you know, continually impressed and also jealous. And I, I mentioned this on the podcast we did yesterday about your show, which is it just feels like you cracked the code of how to do the type of dialogue and storytelling and emotional storytelling that I want to watch on TV. And I feel like it's being squeezed out of dramas because the dramas have to be so premisey and have so much plot and machinery or IP or whatever to service it. And your show can be, you know, can be hilarious and funny and there can be weed gummies and French fries. And then in the midst of that, there is this jewel of a conversation, you know, that cuts right to the quick in a way that I wish other shows did. And I, and I love, the, I love the balance. I mean, I love, I love that the way it can go from one thing to the other. And, and I guess the question I have at the root of that, you know, additional compliment was, 
specifically in the scene work and the scene writing, which is so diamond sharp throughout. And interesting to, to note because like most TV shows, you had a room, you know, there are many writers credited on the episodes in addition to you guys. When you get to a crucial scene, and I'll, and I'll just pull two from the finale just because that's freshest in my mind, but the um, Marcus and Wilson breakup scene, for example, mm-hmm. it's so economical. You know, I, I was dazzled by that. Like you had so far to go in like a page and a half or something and you pulled it off, A, but B, uh, did it in the way that I was like, oh yeah, that's how they talk. Because as if I know them by now, you know, so, so you're, you're, it's, you've correctly assumed my knowledge of them, if I, not to get too meta. So I, I guess I, when you came to a scene like that, or in a more dramatic sense, or even a, you know, a bigger stakesy sense, the slap scene that occurs, I think, right after that, um, I guess, let me just ask you about those scenes. I mean, obviously, there, there's room ideas, and there's passes and drafts and things. But how did you end up in that place where the voices just sounded so natural that it felt obvious to me as a viewer that this is what would be said in this moment. There's, there's like, you know, so much that you can, you know, you starting origin of like, okay, we knew we needed to, we wanted this confrontation of this, like, I'm doing the old material. You should do the new material. Here's my point of view. Like just, they both are coming in with such different points of view. Mm -hmm. Right. And they both think they're right and they both are right. And they're both wrong. And so for us, it's like, they are able to just throw things at each other until it gets to a peak of, well, now I'm just going to try to hurt you. And, and then when she slaps her, and we were actually talking about this today, her, her slap doesn't come from a place of strength. It comes from a place of vulnerability because she's actually let her, she's, she's hurt her. And that's the way that she reacts. So in a way that that like moment, which feels maybe broad in some ways is actually like kind of the most, one of the most of, open and vulnerable moments that Deborah has of the season, right? Because like a comedian whose words are her thing, when she has no more words and has to resort to violence, that's like the most weakened position she could be in. Mm-hmm. And, and and afterwards, she won't even look at herself in the mirror, you know? So she, right. we tried to show subtle ways of like, here's where Deborah is, whether that's with dialogue or with action. So that's something. I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know exactly how to respond to this. But in uh, the other, I guess, thing I would say is like, from when we're pitching in the room, we t- kind of oftentimes are pitching dialogue. And I think that's one way that it helps mm. feel fresh is when you're sometimes saying it versus just committing it to the page because it can help make it feel more real. And then on the day, you know, the three of us are always, I think, trying to make sure things feel authentic and real and trying to make it like, it, I think it'd be interesting for somebody to look at the page and then what actually ends up on screen. I mean, of course, it's interesting for, I think it's always interesting, but um it is very much what is on the page, but, you know, little flourishes or somebody repeating the line that was just said to them back. That feels like something you don't always see on the page because it's not economical, yet it feels very real. Like, so mm-hmm. when he says, we can still go, we can still go, we're going. You know what I mean? Like, that says something else. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Like, that turn of dialogue is probably what made me flag it in my mind because it's not just you know, a clever turn of phrase, it fundamentally reveals how each of them think about the world and how completely mismatched they are, right? Because, exactly. because Wilson was never not going to go. Like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah. And, and, I, and it's a surprise. It feels, it feels like a very real relationship fight that that we people have had, you know, it was like- Paul and I don't fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're perfect, they're perfect. Yeah, I got to give all the credit to yeah. Jen on that scene. Yeah, <laughs> all, the, all the relationship strife and you're like, this is bad. All Jen, Break right? up. That's about me and my husband. Um, but, but, you know, it's in credit to our co-EP, Andrew Law, because I think that specific line yes. came from him because it felt like a very real- 
like jump from A to C that happens in yes. relationship fights when it's like, oh, I thought we were fighting just about the fact that you didn't bring this up to Deborah, but then you just went from A to C of, oh, now the trip maybe isn't even yeah. happening. There's a bigger problem here. And I think those escalations and romantic arguments or friendship argu arguments with anyone is so, I think hopefully that's why it feels really real to you and maybe you connected to it because those are the moments where it, it just goes from zero to 60 and you're like, oh, this fight is much bigger than I even thought it was going to be one second ago. Well, it's revelatory. I mean, they're revealing who they actually are and how they see the world. And that is like stunning for that, the characters in that moment. But it's also really bracing for the audience because we thought we knew a certain thing and now we know something more. And and we also know it's the finale, which is crushing. Um, yeah. Season finale. Um, so I, I, I had a question. I still have the question about the stories you guys are excited to tell in the second season. Um, I guess I'm even more interested in your answer now that I know that you guys are the anti JJ Abrams and you've actually plotted this thing like a, as tightly as a drum through the end, which is less than 10 seasons away. Um, <laughs> I really went hard at you on that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, it was a, it was a big ask and you know, I'll, I'll take the answer I got. Uh -huh. You know, I think we really love seeing them, for instance, out in the desert at that antique shop or, you know, when they go to Sacramento to the comedy club, we really loved seeing these two women find each other in strange places. And so we were very excited to get them on the road. But we also don't want to lose, like you said, people like Lauren Weedman and people like Poppy Lou, who plays Kiki. You know, there are Incredible. so many people that we love and have fallen more deeply in love with that it, it does change the trajectory of what, you know, I think we're still going to hopefully end it in the same place, but we want that we want, and I think this would be very true to someone like Deborah Vance. She's not going to tour like a normal person. She's coming back to her mansion. She's going to come back to Vegas. You know I mean? She's going to be in Vegas right. between stops. So um, I do think that that's something that has made us adapt what we're going to tell next season, but we are really excited not only to get them on the road, but to get again, our favorite ensemble members mm -hmm. in the show. I, I mean, we want to see Marcus's mother, you know? We oh my God. Yeah. Th that's my favorite one. thing about, it's just my favorite thing about TV, which is we're, we're only 10 half hours into our journey on the show. Marcus's mother, I, I don't know her name. Her name is Marcus's mother, as far as I know. And I was so excited to see her because yes. she's there. Yeah. It's that, it's that wonderful feeling relationship you can have with a TV show, which is, I don't know who's coming in the room next, but I'll be happy to see them, you know? Right, and that's right. the sweet spot, I think as a viewer. And I would imagine as a creator as well. It, it totally is because like TV is such a collaborative medium and we've said this before, but that thing Deborah says in episode nine is like when you find someone you mm -hmm. click with, you share a sense of humor, you make each other better. It, that is just so true for creative endeavors, period. And so we, as much as we do have so much plotted, we know where hopefully like we know where the series ends, but at the same time, like all of the wonderful people we cast on the show have made us better and now make us want to write better. And so we will keep adapting and keep, you know, expanding the world to let them in. And, and that it's, it's exciting as a creator because you're allowed to do that. We also get so excited about good casting. Like we, there's so many people oh, that are like, Oh, you can like, tell. Yeah. Lauren Weedman, like I have, I mean, I loved her on Looking. I loved her on Five Year Engagement. Like I've always been like, oh my God, Lauren Weedman is amazing. And then when we saw her name pop up before I even watched the audition, I was like, oh my God, it's Lauren Weedman. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, this is, I had the same thing. I cast her on my show and like, yes, right. when she was on the list, I couldn't yes. believe it. And then she came in and I was like, could you sing? 
And she was like, <laughs> I guess. And then she <laughs> delivers this like knockout blue velvet Chantou's performance. I mean, she's so, so good and so uh. kind and humble and funny. And like when she shows up, I'm like, yeah, they're, they're paying attention to all the roles in, in casting them. You know, there's, you don't sit any plays out. Yeah, like that, that is a thing that we literally like every day look at our call sheet and we're like, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, guess who's coming today? You know, like we genuinely do get that excited. So as much as we want to write for the people that we've all fallen in love with, like they're, they're saying, like, I think there's other people that we're really excited about, like, oh, my God, can you imagine if we got this person and that was their part? Like we do also want to include new exciting people because there's so many actors out there that we do love and we're excited about. You know, I as you guys could tell already, I run a very tight ship usually, and I never, I, I usually can keep the questions in order. And I realized I said I was going to ask you specifically about episode five. I completely forgot, and we won't do editing trickery. We're going to be honest. I, I, I did want to ask. It's an incredible episode and a showcase for, I think, especially for Hannah and and you know just what she's capable of as a performer. I wanted to ask about the moment because I'm watching the show and. You know, we she learns at the end of the episode there's been a suicide, and we have that moment, and you know our hearts stop a little bit. It's it's directed beautifully, it's constructed beautifully. She's walking down the hallway, and I'm like, uh, "What's brilliant about this is that it won't be him." But we still we had the cake and ate it too, right? And then she walks in, and the and the window's blown out. And I, I guess specifically the decision to to do it did it always end that way? And then you wrote backwards to it, or was there a conversation whether you should actually go through with it and then what the fallout would mean for this character emotionally, et cetera, going forward? Yeah, we always, you know, that is unfortunately a phenomenon of Las Vegas that people go blow all their money and if they're gonna end their life, they're like, let's do it in Vegas. Um, so that was, you know, because we wanted to really explore what it's like to live in Las Vegas and not just go there for a bachelor party, you know, we wanted to see things like that. And also it, it's reflective, I think, and emblematic of what the characters are like, you know, that they have this darkness, even though they're comedians and they tell jokes and they, they have sequined gowns or whatever, they still, there's yeah. a dark underbelly. So we always wrote with that in mind and we always knew that we wanted him because he was somebody who was preparing to take his life to give Ava bad advice and have something that she has to, you know, she's intoxicated by this manic pixie dream boy who's like, don't change yourself, love yourself. In fact, quit your job. The only thing that's actually maybe making you work harder and be self-reflective. So right. we did we did write backwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure you felt just off enough that you're like, what the heck is this going to be? But also can understand why she kind of follows him. Mm -hmm. It's easier. And, you know, it gave us the opportunity to also go out of the casino and be in Vegas and experience a little bit of the, the party lifestyle of Vegas, too, which we wanted to see. I mean, you know. Vegas is fun. We want to see some of that fun. Yeah, we always knew. And, and and like Paul said, like he's the manic pixie dream boy. And, and like, I remember Paul so brilliantly directed that episode. And he, I remember him giving Jeff the note of like, you are the devil on her shoulder. You are whispering in her ear and you're going to let her take the easy way out. And this is a character who needs to change. And on that scene in the, like on the bridge, he pushes her. And it's like that thing yeah. when you're some like change is really hard. It's really hard when you're like, fuck, I got to go to therapy and I got to <laughs> be a better person. I know I need to. And so he gives her the easy way out. And like, we always knew that that would be the thing of like, yeah. Oh, okay, Ava is going to resist change and just say, yes, I'll take the easy way out. I will listen to the devil on my shoulder and then realize, oh, that was absolutely the wrong thing, which that realization comes when he jumps out the window. So it was always him jumping out the window. And speaking of paying attention to casting, I mean, another moment in the show where I'm like, 
I'm sorry, I have to pause and IMDb pro this because this guy's phenomenal and why isn't he in everything? Yeah. He's excellent. And he, you know, he's, he played um, Manson. So he's somebody <laughs> who we were like, he's great because he's charming and attractive, but also there's, there can be like a, a craziness, a sweatiness, a darkness. And, you know? and his songs are surprisingly good. <laughs> um, it, it also earned what I thought was one of the most relatable demonstrations of a particular kind of sociopathy I've ever seen on television or in movies, which is, you know, Ava doesn't fully react to it in that moment, just as she doesn't fully, at least in a traditional way, in terms of like uh, emotional reaction to her father's death in the end. But when her tough boss says she's a good writer, then the waterworks are so intense that Wilson should get called. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I love seeing it in context of like everything, all these things we're seeing are, you know, that's not the moment the season is building to, but in a way that has been threaded and it just hit uncomfortably yeah. close, I would say. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I feel like all of us want to be seen and appreciated for the work we do. Right. I mean, that's why we're, I think all in this, but you know, that's another, that's another example of, um, I feel like, I don't know if this is if this is conscious or recognized by people when they watch it, but in episode two, she says, you're not a writer, you're a therapist. I get it. She doesn't even think she's yeah. a writer, much less a comedian. She doesn't even yep. think she can do it. And then she's like, you're a writer, you're too good to quit. You know, I think I think letting Deborah be someone who dismisses her just like everyone else and then be the only person that sees her is why, yep. for me, it, it felt so good. Right. Yeah, we tried to do a lot of mirroring from the first episode or second episode into the final episode. So I think it's kind of, I think it'd be interesting for some people if they've seen this season to go back and watch those first couple episodes. Cause I think they might hit different um, in yeah. a way where it's like, you know, it's set up and set up is, is of course hard. People are always saying pilots are hard and it is true, but I think that we really hoped that, you know, I think we hope that like as a whole, if you're seeing it, then like there's a little bit more, I, in our, my opinion, a little more richness to the earlier episodes that maybe couldn't have been as recognized until you kind of see the whole. It's also fun to go back and watch Jeff Ward, who plays George, and what he does. All of his, I mean, he was really great in his tiny choices to nod to what he's going to do. I mean, you'll see him mm -hmm. talking to her and then look vacantly away, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's really, he's, it's, it's really interesting to watch that back. Not saying that you have to watch the show multiple times, but you, you know. could. <laughs> yeah. I mean, someone's looking at the data. They probably should. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm so excited you guys get to make more of this. I hope you get to make more with continually decreased COVID regulations because oh, we didn't get same. into that because I feel like, you know, because it's not coal mining, people don't want to hear how hard this has been for people in production. But I can't imagine what you guys had to do. And I only hope that it gets easier, even though the job itself is never easy. Yeah, I, it's it's really nice to um, be able to connect with people and laugh without two masks and a shield. That is really, you know, when you're making comedy, it feels better when yeah. you can smile and laugh. I won't recognize a single crew person now. <laughs> I'll be like, hi, nice to meet you. They're like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I'm the first AD. <laughs> yeah. Also, Gene, also who's 69 and type 1 diabetic, in the beginning, we were on such high alert because we were like, we must protect yes. this national treasure. Anybody went walking near her, we were like, get away from her! You know? <laughs> like, because you're giving her so much, like, air and life and recognition, but you can't actually, I won't even say it. You have to protect her. You have to protect her. 100%. Yeah. That was our, like, number one priority. National yeah. treasure. Well, you've done right by her and by TV in general with this show. This first season of Hacks is so outstanding. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for coming to talk to me. And Lucia, will you come back for Babysitter's S2? There's, there is an S2, right? Yes. Yeah, we, it's wrapped. 
Yeah. It's wrapped? Oh, this there is going to go over so great in my household. And by my household, <laughs> I mean me, but I will tell my daughters also. Um, yeah. Heads up. It's a great show also. Thank um, thanks, all of you. Really appreciate the chance to talk to you all. Oh my gosh, thank thanks. you so much. We appreciate thanks. it. Thank you again to Lucia, Jen, and Paul for talking to me about Hacks. If you haven't watched it, why did you listen to this podcast? But you should, <laughs> regardless, you've been spoiled, watch it. It's all 10 episodes streaming now on HBO Max, one of the best shows of the year. And remember that Chris and I will be back later this week, probably Thursday night, talking about Loki, Top Chef, and more. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.